Welcome to the Trucking Market Update on the State of Freight Podcast, brought to you by FTR, where we share timely transportation intelligence with you on a weekly basis. The Trucking Market Update is hosted by FTR's Vice President of Trucking, Avery Weiss. As Avery presents the information in the podcast, you can follow along and review the graphs and indicators by downloading the PDF or PowerPoint of the presentation from our podcast landing page. A link to the PDF and PowerPoint is available now at www.ftrintel.com podcast. From there, you can also find past episodes and downloads for the Trucking Market Update, as well as the weekly rail market update with Todd Tronowski and much more. That link again is www.ftrintel.com podcast. Welcome to FTR's weekly trucking market update. I'm Avery Weiss, Vice President of Trucking. This is episode 68 for the week ending June 19th, 2020. Before we start, a reminder that you can download a PDF with graphics related to this discussion at www.ftrintel.com podcast. You can also download a PowerPoint presentation that includes images of those same charts that you can use in your own presentations. We have lots of data to cover this week, so we'll limit our discussion of other developments. One thing I would point out, though, is that as I record this podcast, the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee is deep into its second day of consideration of the transportation bill that we talked a bit about last week. As time permits, I've had this virtual markup running in the background, and some of the technical challenges and frustrations have, on occasion, been quite entertaining especially when members, most of whom are participating from home via video, are forgetting to mute themselves. We'll talk more about the bill in the next podcast, assuming the committee is done by then. One thing I will note is that in addition to all the provisions that we talked about last week, the committee has adopted an amendment that would increase the minimum level of insurance for motor carriers from $750,000 to $2 million. Okay, let's talk about the spot market. Load volume in the truckstop.com system increased more than 8% during the week ended June 12th, which is week 23 of the year. Although the week-over-week improvement was not as great as the week before, the latest comparison is actually the first in several weeks that was not distorted by reduced loads during the week that included the Memorial Day holiday. The growth in dry van and flatbed volumes was roughly in line with the total 8% increase, but refrigerated volumes were basically flat week over week. Total volumes were about 7% below the five-year average for week 23 and about 15% below the same week last year. While these comparisons are much weaker than they were in week 22, that was to be expected because of prior year volumes for week 23 which were inflated by the Commercial Vehicle Safety Alliance's International Road Check event. The annual spree, which always puts upward pressure on spot metrics, had been rescheduled for early May this year, before, of course, it was canceled due to COVID-19. However, one clear positive in load volumes is that total spot loads have recovered to levels that uh, were comparable to those immediately prior to the grocery restocking push back in March. Dry van spot volumes in week 23 were up nearly 9% over the previous week. Load postings are about 10% below the five-year average and about 18% below last year. 
Dry van volumes were the highest of the year except for the first week and the three principal weeks of the grocery restocking period. With continued low truck availability, which has been the case for really well over a year, the dry van market demand index, which of course is the ratio of loads to trucks in the truckstop.com system, exceeded the five-year average and 2019 levels, even though load volume did not. Refrigerated spot volume was essentially flat at an increase of just 0.4% week over week. The June peak in the spot market typically is particularly pronounced for refrigerated, so the prior year comparisons were very tough. Refrigerated load availability was about 16% below the five-year average and about 31% below last year. The West Coast, which is the segment's largest region, was a big drag on refrigerated volumes, falling about 23%. All other volumes were, all other regions were positive. Although the prior year comparisons are unfavorable, volumes have at least recovered to about the volumes prior to the grocery restocking phase. Refrigerated truck availability remains very low, so the MDI is above the five-year average and just below last year. Flatbed spot rates were up about 8% over the 31% jump in week 22. Volumes have recovered strongly since bottoming out in mid-April and are only about 6% below the five-year average and about 8% below last year, even though we had the tough prior year comparisons. Flatbed volumes have yet to recover to those in February and early March, but the recovery remains remarkable given the situation. With truck availability dipping slightly, the MDI jumped to its second highest level of the year. Total spot rates were up slightly in week 23 as well. The broker posted rate per mile, excluding fuel surcharges, was up about four cents. Spot rates are 4.7% below the same 2019 week. Maintaining or improving on that gap could be difficult in the near term, as rates traditionally rise throughout June, peaking at the end of the month. On the other hand, while June was the relative peak of 2019, the overall spot environment in 2019 was considerably weaker than the five-year average. So in other words, comparing to last year, there is certainly a chance that rates will will at some point match that or come very close. Drive-in rates rose about three cents, and are about 26 below 26 cents below the five-year average and about 13 cents below last year's rate. Refrigerated rates fell about six cents, and that's the largest drop since mid-April. Those rates are about 33 cents below the five-year average and about 20 cents below last year's rate. Flatbed rates rose more than seven cents and are only about five cents below the 2019 rate. However, Compared to the five-year average, they're about 22 cents below. Okay, let's move on and talk a bit about petroleum and diesel prices. West Texas Intermediate Crude has flirted recently with a closing at $40 a barrel, but it has not quite gotten there, falling last week about 40 cents short on one, one trading day. We seem to be relatively stable in the upper $30 a barrel range, but a surge certainly does not seem to be in the cards in the near term. Diesel prices, meanwhile, were up seven-tenths of a cent to $2.40.3 for the week into June 15th. 
With the prior week's one cent increase, this is the first time in 2020 that diesel prices were higher in two straight weeks. Okay, moving on, talk about the labor market. In the last podcast, we talked in some detail about the surprisingly positive May jobs report. Well, it wasn't really that positive, but we had anticipated payroll employment falling, so yes, it was surprisingly positive. However, the latest data on unemployment claims is not as encouraging as the picture painted by the jobs report for May. The Labor Department reported 1.5 million seasonally adjusted initial unemployment claims for the week into June 13th. Although first-time claims have fallen week over week uh, ever since peaking during the week into May 28th, they remain more than double the seasonally adjusted record prior to the COVID-19 crisis. Also, the decrease in the most recent week was very small. Nearly 46 million Americans have filed first-time claims for unemployment on a seasonally adjusted basis over the past 13 weeks. And as we pointed out, seasonal adjustments, when you're talking about numbers so large, do make a difference. And so the actual number is lower by 3.9 million. However, 42 million unemployment claims really doesn't sound all that much better than 46 million. Perhaps more troubling, continued unemployment claims are barely budging. Although continued claims very, fell very slightly during the week into June 6th, and as I've pointed out before, the data here lags initial claims data by week, at 20.5 million, they're only 700,000 below the level two weeks earlier. And indeed, the number of people remaining on unemployment has not really changed materially since the drop of 4 million during the week ended May 16th. By the way, that week was the week during which the Bureau of Labor Statistics gathered data for its May jobs report. The next unemployment report will reflect the week of the BLS collection for the June, for the June jobs report. So if there is any correlation, we might get some early insights next week into the June employment situation report. And speaking of jobs, last week we got the latest data on job openings, which was for April, not May. This data has always lagged uh, the report by month, although I understand that the BLS is working on trying to make it comparable and reporting them in, in roughly the same time frame. I suppose that in a month in which the economy shed more than 20 million jobs, as, as the economy did in April, the fact that there were any job openings is remarkable. In fact, there were a little over 5 million job openings in April. That was down a million from March, and March was down a, about a million from February. Seasonally adjusted job openings in April were the lowest since December 2014. February, by the way, ended a two-year period during which the number of job openings exceeded the number of unemployed. In April, our graph of that relationship became almost comical visually, although it's certainly not funny economically, as the number of unemployed so soared from 7.1 million in March to 23.1 million in April. By the way, we typically have not talked about it in the past, but this data also includes the number of job separations. The April figure was the second highest on record at 9.9 million. The highest figure? Well, that would be March at 14.6 million. Okay, moving on. 
This might be the most jam-packed week we will have in terms of getting our first glimpses into how the U.S. economy is recovering uh, in May. We have key indicators in most uh, of the important freight-related sectors, industrial production, manufacturing, retail and food service sales, and residential construction. Not surprisingly, all were better in May than they were in April. However, there is a fairly wide disparity among the sectors in terms of the strength of the rebound. Let's start with the industrial sector. The Federal Reserve's Industrial Production Index was up 1.4% in May over April. Now, in a normal month, a 1.4% increase would be huge. We have not seen a month-over-month increase larger than that, uh, but four times since 1996. However, it followed an April plunge of 12.5%, which is the biggest drop in a data series that goes back more than 100 years. March had been down sharply too, so industrial production is still more than 15% below what it was in February on a seasonally adjusted basis. The Fed's manufacturing index performed better at 3.8% growth in May. We haven't seen a jump like that since 1959. However, the increase followed declines in both March and April that were even deeper than what we saw in industrial production. Manufacturing output in May was just under 17% below February levels on a seasonally adjusted basis. A major reason for the gains in industrial production and manufacturing was the restart of the automotive sector, which for all practical purposes just didn't exist in April. Automotive production soared nearly 82% in May compared to April, but it's still down nearly 60% relative to February, seasonally adjusted. So the industrial sector is recovering, but it has a ways to go to get back to pre-COVID-19 levels. The picture looks significantly better for retail. Retail and food service sales jumped 17.7% in May, which is by far the largest increase in the nearly 30 years the Census Bureau has tracked this data. The next largest increase was 6.7% in October of 2001, which of course was the month after the terrorist attacks. In fact, the increase in May was even larger than the plunge in April, which was 14.7% in the revised data. Now, that was on top of what was at the time an unprecedented drop of 8.2% in March. So retail sales in May lagged February by 6.1% on a seasonally adjusted basis. That's still a significant decline, but it's much less of a hole than the 15% gap in industrial production and the 17% difference in manufacturing. Where the industrial sector has its automotive industry, Retail had its clothing and clothing accessories stores. That segment skyrocketed 188% in May over April. Even so, sales were more than 63% below the seasonally adjusted February level. So the dynamic is quite similar to automotive in that department stores and shopping malls were basically shut down nationwide during April. So any level of reopening inherently would produce big gains. Now contrast that to restaurants and bars. Yes, we got a healthy increase in May of 29%, but it wasn't the scale we saw with clothing stores. However, many restaurants 
remained open during all of this for carry-out, delivery, drive-through, so on. So the rebound was not as pronounced. Relative to February, though, sales for restaurants and bars are still down 41% on a seasonally adjusted basis. Compared to February, sales are up in just four retail sectors. Non-store retail and food and beverage stores, not surprisingly, are number one and two. The next two are less intuitive. Building material and garden equipment and supply dealers were up 9% over February, and sporting goods, hobby, musical instrument, and bookstores were up more than 3%. Apparently, lots of people spent time during lockdown landscaping, reading, and doing jigsaw puzzles. So why has retail's recovery in May been so much stronger than the industrial sector's recovery? I think the explanation is fairly simple. There are no real barriers to going out to a shopping mall and spending money on inventory that's probably already sitting on shelves, especially when you consider the extra money that people have due to lower spending on the one hand and, of course, the stimulus payments they got from Washington on the other. Industrial production and manufacturing is more complicated, though. For starters, production requires more coordination and effort than simply reopening a retail store. Also, production requires materials that may or may not be readily available. And even if manufacturers do have inventories of all the parts and components they need now, they may be uncertain as to whether those materials will be ready available in, say, a month or two, so they may meter production for a while until they have a better understanding of the status of those supply chains. Finally, in the short run, at least, there's plenty of inventory so there's less pressure to produce than there is to sell. Indeed, the inventories to sales ratio throughout the economy in April, uh, that data lags by a month, the, uh, the data that we're talking about, was the highest on record. Inventories surely will fall in May as sales outpace production and imports. However, these factors all combine to suggest that the industrial recovery will likely lag retail's rebound for a while. Okay, let's talk about residential construction. Housing starts were higher in May than in April, but not by a lot. The 4.3% increase is not very strong, even in a normal economy, but certainly it isn't much to write home about when you consider that they fell more than four, uh, 26% in April, which was tied with March 1984 as the biggest drop ever. And that was on top of a 19% drop in March. Compared to February, housing starts are down nearly 38% on a seasonally adjusted basis. There was a big disparity regionally in, in May housing starts, though. Starts jumped nearly 70% in the West, but were down 16% in the South. Comparing May to February, starts are down in all regions, ranging from a low of 18.7% in the West to 56% in the Northeast, which, of course, was the region hit hardest by the pandemic. One encouraging sign is that the bounce in permits for future residential construction was stronger at 14.4% uh, increase over April, um, which is among, among the 10 largest increases in the 60-year history of the data series. Permits are down 15% from February. Not great, but certainly better than housing starts. Permits are a mixed bag, though. 
On the one hand, they were more forward-looking than housing starts. On the other, getting a permit requires far less commitment than actually turning shovels at construction sites. Still, the rebound in the housing market in general, sales as well as home building, shows real potential for a rebound. In addition to recovery in permits, the Mortgage Bankers Association this week reported that home purchase applications during the weekend of June 12th were the highest in more than 11 years. Not coincidentally, I'm sure, this comes as we see record low mortgage rates. According to Freddie Mac, the rate on a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage fell to 3.13% during the week ended June 18th, and that is the lowest on record. And I believe we've had three or four records lows in mortgage rates uh, during the entire COVID crisis. Of course, more home buying does not necessarily translate into more housing starts, but any acceleration of home buying, even of existing homes, clearly will stimulate home building. Residential construction was booming before the COVID-19 crisis, and it may take a while to get back to that environment, but the potential certainly is there. Okay, let's talk about rates, or rather the government index that approximates rates, the producer price index which measures cost changes from the perspective of the seller. The PPI for truckload primary services was down 2.2% in May from April and down 5.7% from May of 2019. The LTL producer price index held up better, easing only 0.6% month over month and 1.3% year over year. The slide deck accompanying this podcast includes the PPI for Heavy truck and trailer, if you're interested, neither changed much. So that's it for this week's podcast. Let's recap. The longest U.S. economic expansion on record ended in February. Crude prices are stable in the upper $30 a barrel range. Diesel prices were higher two weeks in a row for the first time this year. First time and continued unemployment claims remain very elevated. Job openings fell to their lowest level since the end of 2014. Industrial production and manufacturing were up slightly in May. The inventories to sales ratio in April was the highest on record. Retail and food service sales posted big gains following a huge April decline. Housing starts were covered slightly in May while permits were up more strongly. Mortgage rates fell to an all-time low and the producer price indexes for a truckload and LTL were down in May. So that's it for FTR's Trucking Market Update, episode 68 for the week ending June 19th, 2020. As always, you can download PDF and PowerPoint files accompanying this discussion at www.ftrintel.com podcast. Thanks for listening, stay safe, and we hope you will join us next week. That's it for this week's Trucking Market Update on the State of Freight podcast. You can find more publicly available State of Freight content and download the PDF and PowerPoint of today's presentation by going to www.ftrintel.com podcast. FTR is the leader in freight transportation forecasting in North America, providing consistently reliable reports for trucking, rail, and intermodal transportation, as well as providing demand analysis for commercial vehicle and rail car. For more information about the work of FTR, visit www.ftrintel.com 
or call us at 888-988-1699 to find out which publications will best support your business. Thank you.